What is going on, movie lovers? Wow, it has been a while since I've gotten to say that. Welcome back to another edition of No Content for Old Men. This is the podcast where every week I give you reviews of the latest movies and some streaming suggestions for your weekend. As always, I'm your host, Matt Craig. Thank you so much for listening. And right off the top, we have to uh, have a little programming note because obviously, as I said, I haven't had episodes here for a couple weeks in a row around the holidays and uh, I usually fall behind at this time of year, which is really a shame because this is the time of year where there's just this giant crush of new movies vying for attention. Um, This podcast and my newsletter is really meant to be a kind of consumer guide for you all uh, to which of those things that are all coming out are worth your attention and why you should care about them. But yeah, every year I, I seem to fall behind uh, schedule. And in a perfect world, as of today, I would have for you thoughts on at least these seven movies. West Side Story, Being the Ricardos, Nightmare Alley, Don't Look Up, The Tragedy of Macbeth, The Matrix Resurrections, and yeah, I guess Spider-Man, No Way Home. But I thought that one super long you know, mega edition of the podcast would take too long uh, for you all to listen to and honestly for me to, to write. But um, the, deadly, the deadline of New Year's Eve and my much anticipated year in movies rankings are looming. So I'm planning a kind of cram for the exam week. It'll be two-ish movie reviews per day, three today, but then two the rest of the way. Leading up to the big reveal on Friday morning where I will rank every 2021 release I saw this year, uh, which is a list of well over 80 entries already. And then, yeah, I'll rank them (laughs) one to 80, whatever, for the fourth consecutive year. And here's your schedule for the rest of the week. So today is obviously West Side Story, Nightmare Alley, and Being the Ricardos. Tomorrow, we'll be talking about Don't Look Up and The Matrix Resurrections. Thursday will be The Tragedy of Macbeth and Spider-Man, No Way Home. And then Friday morning, the fourth annual Every Movie in 2021 ranked. So thank you for sticking along with me all year long. And then throughout this cram for the exam week and leading up to the big year in movie review. Without further ado, I guess it's time to jump into the first one of those. Welcome back to the show. We got West Side Story. Think about the number of creative geniuses who have had a hand in this latest rendition of West Side Story. It's directed by Steven Spielberg, perhaps the most iconic filmmaker of all time. He did Jaws, E.T., Jurassic Park, Indiana Jones, Schindler's List, Saving Private Ryan, This movie was written by Tony Kushner, a Pulitzer Prize winner and Oscar nominee for Best Screenplay on both of his previous movie scripts. It's remaking a 1961 movie that won 10 Oscars, the most awarded to a single movie ever. It's adapted from a stage musical that won two Tonys, with music from legends Leonard Bernstein and Stephen Sondheim. It's updating the Romeo and Juliet story by a guy you may have heard of named William Shakespeare. So, despite that original movie's pedigree, which left many asking why anyone would want to remake it, a position I ordinarily agree with, the legacy of the 1961 classic is complicated by numerous social shortcomings, most notably that several of the Puerto Rican characters were played by white actors, including star Natalie Wood, donning thick accents and what essentially amounts to brownface. 
That original movie is a wonderful time capsule of 1960s Hollywood. Warts and all. It's pure artifice. All about bright lights and singing and dancing and jazz hands. Showbiz, baby! Despite the grimy setting of a low-income neighborhood in 1950s New York City, it's incredibly glamorous. And the greatness of the music is undeniable. Still, it was ripe for a revisit. Spielberg, not an obvious choice to direct a movie musical, was able to bring to that pre-existing baseline of excellence his once-in-a-generation mastery of movie craft. This new movie captures the grittiness of mid-century tenement buildings and hoodlums, but in all their romantic glory, producing nothing less than the most gloriously old-school Hollywood spectacle released by a major studio in years. The full treatment of lens flares, silhouetted backlight, huge song and dance numbers, and perfectly synchronized camera movement with the choreography. This was far from slapping a fresh coat of modern technology paint on a classic tale. To watch the original movie and the new version on successive nights, as I did, is to appreciate all the subtle changes that not only updated the story, but made it altogether better. This may seem sacrilegious against a movie that won 10 Oscars, but this remake improves on the original in every way. The decision to cast the entire story in the direct shadow of a gentrifying Manhattan more clearly underlines the stakes and creates an urgency that brings the conflict between the Jets, which is the European immigrant gang, and the Sharks, the Puerto Rican gang, into focus as a war between two equally poor communities grasping to control what's left of their home. Most notably, in this version, there's a great leveling of racial portrayals. Not only are all the Puerto Rican characters played by Hispanic actors, which is, of course, the bare minimum, but the two sides are actually valued equally. This includes the decision to not put any subtitles on the liberal use of Spanish dialogue in the movie, normalizing it without sacrificing any narrative cohesion because any necessary information is also said in English. That move could have come across as woke glad-handing, especially because the primary filmmakers behind this project are still old, rich white guys, but instead it plays incredibly sincere. Several characters, including our protagonist Tony, are given additional backstory that creates deeper and clearer motivation for the events told in the story. The leaders of each gang are somehow harsher and more sympathetic. Lynchpin character Chino is given a necessary arc before his tragic final act. And somehow, impossibly, the towering Rita Moreno performance from the original is topped by the utter brilliance of Ariana DeBose's Anita. The acting performances across the board are strong and, I believe, meant rising new stars out of DeBose and Rachel Zegler, who plays the previously flat protagonist character of Maria, the Juliet, with newfound warmth and complexity. And while many object to the personal decisions of Ansel Elgort, look that one up, and rightly point out how miscast he is here as an obviously late 20s looking Romeo to the teenage Maria, I can't help but compliment his physical presence, his impressive dancing ability, and, though this may sound like a backhanded compliment, his ability to play the male version of the manic pixie dream girl movie trope. All minor, all minor sins here can be forgiven by the music. It's hard to think of many American songbook moments more iconic than Tonight, Tonight, or uh, I Like to Be in America, or G. Officer Krupke, <laughs> or I Feel Pretty, Oh So Pretty. <laughs> 
anyway, in the musical genre, songs are like the car chases and fist fights of an action movie. And these more than bring the show-stopping appeal. In this newer version, their order in the movie and in a couple cases, even the person singing them are changed to surprising and once again wonderful effect. The result of all this tweaking is a proper capital M movie. It feels big and important and its emotional punch hits home like a ton of bricks. I saw it in theaters with a friend who cried through the probably the final 30 minutes. She works in movie development, and her comment after the screening was simply, that movie reminded me why I want to make movies, followed up later with a more dramatic, if I can make one movie like that in my career, I'll be happy. My suggestion to her was to get Spielberg, working off the groundwork laid by Kushner, Robbins, Wise, Bernstein, Sondheim, and Shakespeare. That's a heck of a way to start. Okay, next up is another movie playing currently in theaters. It's Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. So the question I have for you is this. What movie should you make after you win Best Picture? Maybe you think it's time to taste that sweet, sweet Marvel money like Chloe Zhao, who went from winning with for Nomadland to making Marvel's Eternals. Or you immediately go for the back-to-back crowns like Alejandro Iñárritu did after he won Birdman and then almost won for The Revenant. Or you have a midlife crisis and decide you want to become Batman like Ben Affleck after winning Argo, winning for Argo. Guillermo del Toro was patient after his win for The Shape of Water, waiting four full years, although they are pandemic-affected years, to bring us Nightmare Alley, his take on a classic noir story about a traveling circus trickster in the 1940s. One of the signature aspects of noir, a genre I fully explained earlier this year, if you want to look up the episode about No Sudden Move, is that all the characters are at least partially evil, and in fact... They have to be somewhat evil in order to survive in a harsh world. That feeling can make movies like this one somewhat alienating to a generation trained by the clean good versus evil lines of Marvel movies. A Bradley Cooper plays a carny with the ambition to rise above his station by becoming a mentalist, which is a type of magician who appears to have supernatural powers. His Icarus-style arc gives the movie a satisfying structure, but the movie is more interested in the way he interacts with a truly astonishing array of noir characters and the world-class actors who embody them. The femme fatale, played by Kate Blanchett, the love interest, played by Rooney Mara, the Mark, played by Richard Jenkins, the father figure, played by Willem Dafoe, the mentor, played by David Strathairn, the confidant, played by Tony Collette, Plus, colorful one-offs played by Mary Steenburgen, Ron Perlman, Holt McElhaney, and Tim Blake Nelson. They inhabit a spooky noir world that's almost too beautiful to describe in words. The lighting and production design, the costuming and colors, it's gorgeous on a level above anything else I've seen this year, creating each frame like it's a painting that could hang in a museum. When you assemble a troupe of actors this astoundingly impressive and put them in a world as visually arresting as this one, you've ensured audience participation through any amount of craziness or weirdness you want to present, which, incidentally, is a lot. The movie rests on the unstable ground of magic and mysticism, leaving viewers feeling quite often as if the rug beneath them could be yanked out at any moment. Del Toro is willing to stay in that uneasiness longer than most directors, not pulling the strings on the movie's plot twists until very late into its annoyingly long two-and-a-half-hour runtime. 
Anyone who watches this movie will have no choice but to surrender to the overwhelming care and craft put into it, to call it a good movie. Fewer will have will walk away from it and say they truly enjoyed this twisted, diabolical world of grifters and hucksters Del Toro has created here, which, like many quite great noir movies before it, leaves one with little hope for the real world outside the theater walls. Last but certainly not least, it's on Amazon Prime and in theaters. It's Being the Ricardos. Usually, show business movies aren't really about show business. The familiar settings and allure of celebrity provide a nice backdrop to tell stories about jealousy in All About Eve, clinging to the past in Sunset Boulevard, the cost of achieving your dreams in La La Land, politics in Argo, creative control in Mank, or how hot Brad Pitt looks shirtless in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Rarely have I seen a movie so laser-focused on the nuts and bolts of television production than Being the Ricardos, the latest directorial project from screenplay maestro Aaron Sorkin. Going behind the scenes of a production, broadly defined, is Sorkin's M.O., and without listing his whole resume, I bet you can think of the times he's done this for the White House, SNL, ESPN, Facebook, Apple, and even an MLB baseball team. So fear not, Sorkin fans, because this deep dive into the world of 1950s smash TV hit I Love Lucy gives ample space for walk and talks, hyper-literate ping-pong dialogue, and soaring philosophical monologues. It's also a proving ground for Sorkin's directorial ability, which is not only more stylish but also more cogent here than in his previous efforts in Molly's Game and The Trial of Chicago 7. Still, there's a lingering feeling that this movie doesn't quite make a convincing argument for its own existence. As a nostalgic exploration of the public and private lives of Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, it's worthwhile, but I doubt those names carry much significance for viewers under the age of 50. As a story about a woman's fight for empowerment, respect, and ultimately power, it's effective, but Sorkin is an odd avatar and not entirely interested party in making a message movie, which leaves us with TV production, followed here with incredible detail. Script read-throughs, rewrites, costuming, blocking, camera tests, light line readings, creating the narrative arc of a season, sponsorships, dealing with executives, and all the other details that would seem tedious if applied to any other line of work other than Hollywood. It's incredible that the climax of this movie is literally whether or not the setup to a joke in one episode will get a laugh from the studio audience. And incredibly, Sorkin to... It's a... <laughs> And it's incredibly Sorkin to mine some deeper resonance out of perhaps the show's most iconic line. Lucy, I'm home. Perhaps the inconsequential nature of this ultimately very fun movie would have felt less important had its leading actors not been miscast. Both Nicole Kidman as Lucille Ball and Javier Bardem as Desi Arnaz are incredible actors and talented enough to play any part while lending their Academy Award-winning gravitas to it. They simply aren't right for these roles. And I'm not even counting the social media outcries for Deborah Messing's almost spooky likeness to Ball. Sorkinism as a style requires avatars who are loose and a little neurotic and linguistically dexterous 
which doesn't quite match the nervy determinism of Kidman or the laid-back patience of Bardem. Plus, they are a full 10 years older than their real-life counterparts during the, quote, present time of the movie, and in frequent flashbacks, as much as 30 years older than the supposedly youthful and vivacious pair of showmen. A younger, or maybe even less deathly serious pairing, lead pairing, would have fit better with a knockout supporting cast, particularly J.K. Simmons, Nina, Arianda, and Aliyah Shawkat, all of whom burn through the warp speed comedy and amply shift on a dime into sad or sentimental moments. As with most Sorkin, the baseline for entertainment is so incredibly high, you'll never re regret investing your time in it. And though this movie falls short of excellence, it's clear Sorkin is honing his craft and seems likely to me that he will eventually direct a masterpiece. All right, guys, that's going to do it for this week's show. Thank you so much for listening. Whew, I can't believe I got through that. I feel like my <laughs> pronunciation was horrible tonight. So, yeah, I appreciate you guys listening to the show. Luckily, I'll have another shot at it literally tomorrow. So uh, stick around tomorrow for talk about Don't Look Up, the Adam K movie, and The Matrix Resurrections. Uh, until tomorrow morning, guys, I guess I'll have to see you at the movies.